Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Thomas Delauer. He's a fitness expert, nutrition specialist, entrepreneur, YouTuber, and an author. Improving your physique is one of the journeys that almost everyone faces challenges in, with both body and mind. Thomas has devoted his entire career to understanding the science of training and nutrition, specializing in the connection between mental and physical well-being. Expect to learn how to build muscle while fasting, what is the easiest step-by-step plan for fat loss, what takeaways we can glean from 100-year-olds around the world, the zero-calorie hack to kill your cravings, the extraordinary childhood that shaped Thomas, his best advice on how to overcome past traumas, and much more. You might have seen earlier this week that I did an announcement saying that I am doing some live shows toward the end of this year, and the rumours are true. I will be on stage in a venue not a million miles away from where you live. And the way that we are routing this tour is based on where people that listen to the show live. So if you go to chriswilliamson.live, you can sign up there. Tell me your city. Just tell me where you live. uh, And this will determine where the show goes to. The more sign-ups in each particular city, the more likelihood there is of me going there. chriswilliamson.live. And you will be the first people to find out about tickets and dates and locations and all that stuff too. Uh, And it's going to be incredibly exciting, uh, terrifying, nerve-wracking, and everything else. I thank you. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've won Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Thomas DeLauer. (laughs) 
Thomas Lalawa, welcome to the show. Dude, thanks for having me. For the people that don't know you, what's your background? What do you do? Just a guy on the internet, man. I'm just, just you know, I, for, for me, I'm a translator of science. Uh, I'm not a biochemist. I don't pretend to be one. I, I take the research. I know how to read a paper very well. And I tend to get really overly excited about stuff like that. And then I translate it and I try to put it into layman terms and do a decent job at articulating complex subject matter into a way that's digestible for people so that they can have a chance to really review the research and understand and put another brick in the wall for themselves towards being healthier, having more vitality and just being better humans. Why did you get interested in that? I realized not that long ago that I'm not that great at many things, uh, but I'm decent at a lot of things. And I realized the one thing that I am really good at is articulating and communicating. And for a long time, I tried to fight that. I always wanted to be the strongest guy in the room or the smartest guy in the room. I always wanted to kind of, you know, face adversity and, and I just want to, I want to be that guy. And then I realized that, you know what, it's actually really good to be a good, effective communicator. And I started leaning into that. And the moment that I leaned into that and I fed the stallion, starved the pony, so to speak, I realized that I can take all these things that I'm halfway decent at, but really get people excited about them with my ability to communicate it. Talk to me about childhood for you. You have a very interesting background. What was that like? Yeah, my childhood, you know, it, it's interesting. I don't talk about it much. And recently it's been coming up more probably because people are trying to figure out what makes me tick. Um, I came from what looked like a pretty normal, conventional childhood on the surface. Uh, I had a loving mother, I had a you know, very loving father. I ran my first like 10K when I was, I think, five years old, right? So I, I, I was kind of got into running at a very young, young age. And then I ultimately, I'm flashing forward, I ran my first marathon when I was 11. And the reason that I'm starting with that is not to say, hey, I'm this amazing person, look at me. It's because now as an adult and as a father myself, I look back at that and I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Like, what, what was my mom thinking? And I love my mom and I'm close with my mom. And uh, everything... I did everything with my mom. Like I was always along by her side, right? And I realized that she did these things and I wanted to be like her. I wanted to be with her. And my mom would run marathons, so I would run marathons too. And my mom sort of had this mentality of like, hey, well, you know what? If you want to hang out with me, then you're going to do the stuff that I'm going to do. And there was no real worry about it. It was just the way that it is. Um, hang on. So we're talking age four in order to be able to get ready to run this at I don't even five. think I really, I mean, I was running like, I remember running like two, three miles at age four, five. And it was- With mom? Yeah, with mom. You know, and I remember people, because we lived really close to these wineries, like we lived in Sonoma. And I remember people like clapping, you know, like when I would go on runs, I'd be like, way to go, like way to go, mom. You know, way to, like it was cool. I enjoyed it. There was never a moment where I didn't like it. Like I always loved it. Uh, that evolved into sort of loving the pain of it too, which I mean, you talk to endurance athletes and that's a pretty common trait. They kind of almost have this masochistic type feeling with it. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I was training at a very young age for that and that just became part of my life. I was the skinny runner kid that was made fun of because it was weird to run. You know, you're in elementary school and you're the kid that wants to go out for a run. You're the kid that decides to like run home from school. Like I, I was a weird kid. Don't get me wrong. I was like the hiking boots and shorts type of kid. So yeah, I was weird, but my mom exposed me to so many different crazy experiences to the point where other kids thought it was insane. Like, so I was the weird kid 
as a result of my mom always exposing us to very interesting things. When I was 11 years old, I backpacked the John Muir Trail from Yosemite to Mount Whitney. It was 230 miles. Took us 16 days and no experience in backpacking. And then went back again the next year to do it again and did it in 11 days. And ran out of food. You know, ran out of food for four days. We come back. CPS gets called on us because I'm emaciated. My mom's like, no, these kids wanted to do this. And we're like, yeah, we want, no, no, mom is awesome. Like, trust me, we want to do this stuff. It's the child, it was just crazy. But at the time, nothing felt weird about it because it was normal to us. And nothing was ever, we were never put in a situation where we felt in danger or anything like that. But we, we were always subconsciously held to this very high standard. Like you should perform. And it made me a very results oriented person that unfortunately damaged me a little bit as an adult, because being a results oriented person has resulted in me being, well, results-oriented, which I don't necessarily know is the best way for me to go through life. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of nuance, a lot of detail that goes that goes on there, but just interesting experiences that made people look at me funny. Were you bothered by school? Were you interested in school? Hated school. Hated it. Why? I just, well, for one, I, I, I just always felt like I could go faster. Like I, I felt like very restricted. And I don't mean that in some conceited way, like, oh, I'm smarter than people. That's not even it. I just felt like uh, this is not a good use of my time. Like I, I felt like this is this is terrible. From what age? Uh, oh shoot! I got uh, it's a funny story. I got expelled from preschool. The only person in the history, <laughs> the only person at that time in the history of Sunshine Preschool in Sonoma, California, probably can fact check this, to get expelled. Uh, I just wouldn't have it. I wanted to go home, and it was. I tried to escape. <laughs> I did escape. And I wanted to go home. I would just scream and cry until my mom came to pick me up and say, I don't want to fucking be here. And uh, kindergarten, I made it through kindergarten, but it was like every day after school, I would, uh, it was like, I would cry waiting for my mom to come home, come pick me up because I wanted to go home so bad. I just did not want to be there. I hated it. And I don't know to this day, like why kids weren't particularly mean to me. I actually had friends. I was weird, but it wasn't like I was bullied. Like, I mean, I was kind of picked on because I was the skinny runner kid. But it was more just like people joshing Easy. me all the time. Yeah. Uh, but I hated it. I hated being confined. I hated being restrained. And what was home life like? Home life was, you know, it was, as a young kid, it was pretty normal. My mom uh, went to school. She was a microbiology major. So, but she never really used it professionally. She was, uh, she owned a landscaping business for a while. And then she became a school bus driver randomly. It was very interesting. She randomly decided, I'm, I'm just going to drive the school bus because it's a way for me to have summers off with my kids. And a way for me to have the same hours as my kids. And that was a root of me getting made fun of a lot. Oh, Tom's mom's the school bus driver. Uh, my dad owned a bookstore in Oakland. This is very interesting because at the time, I'm like, I'm a kid. I don't really care. My dad owns a bookstore. whoop de doo But as I grow older, I realized that this bookstore, Delauer's super newsstand, 13th and Broadway in Oakland, was the only, it was the world's largest newsstand. So it had newspapers and magazines from all over the world that would come there one to two days later after they were released in their respective countries. So as a result, my father's bookstore was like this massive cultural melting pot in Oakland where people from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Australia, whatever, would come there to pick up respective papers and whatever from their countries. So not only was it a cultural melting pot where people all came together and put aside their differences, which is very interesting, it was also the site of a lot of hate crime, uh, the site of a lot of, so massive thing in history. So if you look up Delauer's super newsstand, uh, you see that it's been around in you know, family business. So I never realized that until I was an adult. I was like, wow, how, that's very wild. Uh, my dad worked a lot. 
you know, but he, he was still a very present father. Um, so home life, home life was good. It was, you know, I, I could pick apart little things. Everyone can, uh, there were extreme situations. There were situations that I probably wouldn't talk about publicly, but nothing, nothing that was ever dangerous or bad. Mm. What about when you get into teen years, when you start to take life a little bit more seriously? Yeah. So by the time I was about nine or 10, I ended up with obsessive compulsive disorder. I was, uh, I used to have to flip light switches. I was always, uh, I remember these, I had these like hardwood floor in my, uh, in one like transitional area of my house. And it had like these squares. It kind of looked like, uh, uh, where the Celtics play, like that courthouse has like the, you know, uh, and I used to, I could only step on the ones that had the grains facing forward. If I stepped on the grains facing laterally, uh, it was terrible. And it was almost always surrounding, uh, something happening to my mom. Like if I stepped on the wrong one, my mom would die. Uh, I literally took the step on a crack, break your mother's back thing, like literally. So I was like, I can't, like, I can't, it will break my mom's back. Like I had this attachment to my mother. Um, so it was, so I, I suffered with that. By the time I was in middle school, I can't remember the term for it. Uh, I was pulling my hair out. So I, I had bald spots in my hair because I was pulling my hair out just from anxiety. Um, so I was put on, you know, benzodiazepines at, at like age 13, uh, but I didn't really take them. They were how, just- How common is that for a child to be prescribed benzos at that age? Not very common. Uh, it's, it's not not a healthy thing. It was like for an emergency case situation, right? So it was in one of those things where like it was not, like my mom was supposed to maintain control of them and things like that. And I don't even ever recall taking them, right? So it was one of those things where with that- I ran into all kinds of crazy situations. I mean, it was just, I felt constantly anxious. Like my teen years were really, really tough. And of course, pulling my hair out led to getting made fun of. And the only thing that I really found control in was running. Like I, I could be in control when I was running. So for me, running became even more a part of my identity. It was like, this is, and that carries through to me today. Like I don't necessarily feel whole unless running is a part of my life. And I'm very self-aware of that. Uh, because it goes all the way back to, you know, a coping mechanism for me. So teen years, early teen years were particularly rough for me. What is happening with your sense of your own body as you're growing? Have you got any body dysmorphia at this age? Not as much now because I'm very aware of it. Um, definitely went through phases, even phases of self-sabotage. Like when I became overweight, I, I ultimately had an eating disorder. I talked about this with Nick Bear. Uh, there was a point when I was like, you know, 13, 14, where I used to kind of like measure my, uh, my wrist with my fingers. Mm -hmm. And if I could have room to like rattle my wrist around in my fingers, that was like a win for me. Mm -hmm. Like no reason. I didn't want to be skinny. I didn't care. It was an element of control. All yeah, of this it was, was an arbitrary measure that you decided, especially given the fact that like the width of your wrist growing and the length of your fingers growing between the ages of 12 and 16 aren't going to happen in, yeah. in sync with each other. Correct. Correct. So there, there, I mean, there's nothing, nothing there. There's an it arbitrary just, choice. Yeah. It was the same kind of satisfaction that I would almost get. At, <clears throat> it was the same kind of satisfaction that I would almost get out of flipping light switches. It was just something like, but I also felt very con in control with that. I mm -hmm. felt like I can control when I don't eat. I can control what I don't eat. I didn't really have an obsession with body composition. I, I suppose if I reverse engineer it, I could think about it and say, yeah, like I wanted to be lighter for running and it made more sense. So I was very skinny, very frail. Um, you know, and then when I was like 13, 14, I did discover the gym and I got really interested in the gym and actually the gyms, I would arguably say saved my life. Like it was one of those, because I was one of those people that had I gotten into the wrong drugs at that point in time, I think it could have been very bad. I've always been a very obsessive person. 
But to come back to your question, like the body dysmorphia now, to a certain degree, yes, because my profession depends on me being lean in a lot of ways. So do I have anxiety around not looking a certain way? I would be lying if I said no. Um, but it's in control and I'm self-aware of it. But when I became overweight, which we'll talk about in a little bit, I reverse engineer that and I think about it. I was like, it's almost a means of self-sabotage. It was like, it was me in a way, like I was aware that I was gaining weight and like gained a bunch of weight fast. And it was almost like this revolt against how I was before. And uh, it's interesting. It's just a very wild thing. I'm a very self-aware, psychoanalytical person. So I try to look at these things. Uh, but yeah. Didn't you say something about psychedelics when you were younger? So yeah, so yeah, that's what's interesting. So like when I was in seventh and eighth grade, I tried acid. Like I tried, and like I smoked pot like a crazy kid, seventh grade, seventh, eighth grade. It was, and I know people, some people judge on that, but I, I mean, I was a kid, I was a lost kid, right? Like what? And I look back at that now being a father, I'm just like, what was I missing? Because I, I feel like my childhood wasn't fucked up. Like I don't, like it doesn't look like that way on the surface, right? But there's certain things, but I'm like, why was I doing that stuff? And I got that stuff out of my system so young. By the time I was 14, I was like a total square. You know, like I didn't even drink. Were you doing that with people? So generally, yes. I had like two close friends that I would. You know, and it was, uh, it was just, it was weird. And I lived in, uh, I lived in Italy for a semester. Went to school in Italy for a semester when I was, uh, I can't remember if I was 12 or 13. I guess I would have been, I think I, think I turned 13 when I was there. And that was a cool, cool experience because my mom said, hey, we're going to enroll you in homeschool so that you can study abroad and take college courses if we can get you approved for it. So basically we did. We got me approved through like AIFS and I was able to get college credits to study art history as a 12, 13 year old while concurrently homeschooled. Great experience. But all the college kids that I was around thought it was really fun to like get me drunk, get me shit faced, pump me full of whatever the fuck they wanted to. And for me, it was like, it was kind of fun because I was the cool like 12 year old and these, I mean, you're taking people that are like 19, 20 years old and they're just like, oh, cool. Let's fuck with this kid. Yes. And uh, I look back at that and I'm like, I was exposed to some interesting stuff at a very young age. But then you come out of that and you've almost had a like hedonistic period before you've even hit puberty. And now you're going through your teen years being a little bit more. How did the OCD blend with being ripped out of your hometown being taken over to Italy, also all of these new experiences, older kids coming in and getting you to do stuff. I would have imagined that those two things would have clashed very badly. Dude, I think it actually like was a pattern interrupt for me. Oh, so I think it's actually, I think it's exactly it. what I needed. And sometimes I wonder if it's like, I was like, did my mom know this? Like she, my mom's philosophy when things was like, when everyone goes this direction, go that direction. You know, where everyone wanted to put me in therapy and everyone wanted to fix the problem and everyone, wanted to, you know, hypnosis, this, and nothing was working. I was still anxious. I was still dealing with problems. My mom's just like, you know what? Maybe, maybe this fucking kid needs the mountains. Mm. You know, let's do this. Maybe this freaking kids needs some like different cultural experiences. And that shit helped me. It absolutely helped me. But in certain ways, it may have made it worse. But I, I don't think keeping me in the confined little box, I hated my hometown. You know, as an adult now, like I look back at it and I appreciate it, but I hated my hometown and I, I just couldn't stand it. And I just wanted to get out all the time. And I've always felt like that, or I had always felt like that as a kid. I felt very confined uh, in any situation you put me in school, my town, even my state. And I would sometimes develop resentment towards it because I'm just, I, I got to get out of this. And the only way for me to get out of it is to hate it as much as I possibly can until I finally explode and get out of it. 
Okay, so you're getting toward the end of your teens now. When do you start to gain weight? So gain weight at the uh, probably like 19, 20. Oh, okay. So we've got a little bit so, of time. In yeah. Place. So, I mean, I put on some muscle and that was a, that was kind of the golden period of, of my, my teens. Like, right, like from like 15 to 18, I was independent study. Uh, and a lot of the reason I did that is after my mom and dad's divorce, when I was 13, uh, I lived with my mother. My mother was dealing with a number of different things, um, both you know, legally, mentally, just a lot of struggles that I don't necessarily need to go into detail, but you know, she needed some help and stuff. So for me, it was independent study where it was like homeschool, but I was still part of the school and still enroll in school sports, a really cool program. It worked well for someone like me, but then I also worked 40 or 50 hours a week to help support my mom and to help just kind of keep age? life going. So from 14, the time I could get my, my worker's permit. What uh, were you doing? 40 so or 50 bagging, hours? bagging groceries. So bagging groceries. And then I worked for a financial services company where I would just like file stuff. So I'd work as many hours as I could. So when you have your worker's permit, I think you could only, I could only work like 30 hours at a select role. And then I would go to like a different role and get paid under the table, you know? So it's plus school, plus school, but I was independent. Honestly, I was never challenged by school, like independent study. I could get all my work done in like two hours for the week. Like it wasn't a big deal. And honestly, I held like a 3.98 GPA. Like it wasn't hard for me. And like school just didn't challenge me. Of course I wasn't trying to be challenged. Like I wasn't taking, I was like in AP English, you know, I was in high English. Um, I sucked at math. So I was like base baseline math and just like, you know, so I kind of skated through just school. Getting by. Yeah. Just getting by, but with good grades. And, uh, but I just was not challenged. And for me, it was like, I learned the value of a dollar really quick because I'm like, okay, well I know how to work. And, uh, that, that was what was important to me. It was like, how do I, how do I work? How do I get all this done? You realize how much of an outlier situation that is right. To be working between 40 and 50 hours at the age of 14 or 15 plus doing self-directed homeschool whilst supporting mum, whilst trying to learn about yourself and the world around you whilst dealing with the after effects of OCD. Yeah, probably is a lot, <laughs> but everything prior to that felt so normal, right? And it's, it's, it's wild. It, well, that, that's one of the interesting things about anybody's life experience, right? You, you're never going to until Elon fully dials in Neuralink, you're never going to be able to feel what it's like to be in the texture of somebody else's mind. You're never going to know what life is like to live as somebody else. And with the advent of the internet and social media, which kind of does give us the view through the eyes of other people, at least in a small dose. But as a kid, you know, when you're relatively sheltered, you're not exposed to as many people or things, and you don't have that ability to use theory of mind, the life that you have is the only one that you've ever known. So it is normal. Very much is. Mine as well. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to have siblings. I was an only child. So I'm like, well, this is, this is just what life is, isn't it? It's you and mum and dad and the dogs. Like I, you, know, you don't know what it's like to have a house that's got cats. You don't know what it's like to have a house that's got blah, blah, blah. You know, like, I didn't know what it was like to have a house that had it. We, we always, <laughs> every house that we were in, mum and dad loved baths. So we always had like a bath. So I'm like, the first time that I lived in a house with a shower was when I went to university. So I'm like, your life experience, especially if you're a little bit more sheltered or sheltered, but like constrained sometimes, whether by availability or, or, or habit, um, can be difficult for you to sort of rip yourself out of that and work out what's going on. I could never understand why my sister, who's four years older, when she went off to the Air Force Academy, I never understood why she was so manically worried about me. Because I was, you know, 14. I'm just like, Liz, like, everything's fine. Like, why are you freaking out? Like, so stressed out, worried about me all the time. Like, what's going to happen to Thomas? What's going to happen to Thomas? 
And all I could think of was like, oh, you're dealing with some serious issues there, girl. <laughs> and then I'm like, man, I talk with her now. She's like, you see why I <laughs> was freaking was the heck out. Maybe I, maybe I was one of the potential issues. Okay, so you're now working full-time whilst doing your self-directed stuff for school, going to the gym, gaining a – but you're saying that this is also the golden period. Well, I felt great. There was nothing – like it was a period of time where I felt in complete control. I've got infinite energy. I'm in my teens. Made of rubber and magic. Tired, like whatever. Like I could work. I was making money, helping support mom, but I was also making my own money. And so by the time I was, you know, 15, 16, things started to kind of mellow out a little bit. I didn't need to work as much. I was still working probably 30, 40 hours. Um, And then at that rate, uh, I was still running cross country in the fall. So I was, I was obviously, I was a runner. Of course, I'd run cross country. Uh, I discovered rugby my junior year. so, So I played rugby. I was a winger. I really enjoyed rugby. It was a way for me to connect. I didn't really, on the surface, I didn't have any issues socially. Like I had what would look like a normal social dynamic, but deep down, it was a struggle for me. Deep Mm -hmm. down, it was really hard for me to, uh, I had to work to maintain friendships uh, because I felt like it just, uh, it just didn't come natural. I was a very introverted person and that probably just came over. I think that was a, a nurture versus nature thing. I think that was something that like was manufactured as a result of working and just probably non-typical upbringing. Yeah. Just not having the time. And and my mom also did kind of like make it seem growing up as though anything conventional was not okay. Uh, She used to pull us out of school. My sister and I pull us out of school sometimes to be like, you know, screw school. Like we're going to go hike. We're going to go do something, you know, pull us out of school. Like no parents would do that. Like, but my mom really wanted to be around us. Did she want, was she wanting to be around us? Was she wanting to groom us? I don't understand, Mm. you know, right. Um, but I enjoyed it because any opportunity to not be in school, I was all about. So for me, the fact that I could independent study, didn't have to spend time at wasting my time at school, could work and actually do something constructive. Um, so yeah, I was still running, not as much running, but I was starting to lift and, you know, I got in pretty good shape in high school. I was, I, uh, and then I met my wife when I was 16 and she was 14 and that's when things just got really good. Like things felt great. Like I had met ultimately what I felt was the woman of my dreams and is the woman of my dreams. And I married her and have two kids with her. Never been with another woman in my life. And talk about coping mechanisms, right? Like talking about like my wife had a similar background, uh, not the same, of course, but her family dynamic was very twisted. And we found each other and we just like locked onto each other, man. Like our messed up family dynamics and, you know, two divorced families. And we're just like, we got each other. You know, and I was like, finally, this chick understands me. Someone understands me. Someone loves me for me, short shorts and hiking boots. And uh, it's awesome. So like that- That here, sounds like a blessing. Dude, it's fucking amazing. Do you think about where you would be if you hadn't met your wife at that oh, point? Dude, dude I, I honestly think, uh, I, I think I'd probably be dealing with addiction and things like that. I, I really do. Because like she is- the Jane to my Tarzan, you know, like it, without that, I'm just fucking crazy. Like I, I would fly off the handle. Cause like, I'm just so high energy. So like, I need a little bit of that guardrail. Like I need that. And I think now I, you know, I've developed traits and I'm mature enough that heaven forbid something ever happened to her. Like, I don't think I'd spiral off, but I think during those fundamental years, it was so unbelievably like critical. What happens with the weight gain? So the weight gain came, I, I always joke about this because I never, out there in the internet, it makes it seem like I was this obese slob that was always that way and I struggled with my weight. 
the struggle was real, but what people don't understand is the mental issues that came from that and stemmed that. So a lot of it started as somewhat of a bulk gone wrong. It started out as I'm going to put on some weight for muscle, right? I'm going to, I'm going to try to gain some muscle. And then over time, I just kind of stopped working out, got obsessed with, uh, you know, I ended up going into a, a commission only a healthcare recruiting job, you know, all this high stress stuff where I was just trying to make money. So in the same stuff I was doing earlier, except now I am completely on my own and I've got responsibilities and my body just wasn't working the same way that it used to. So it was very easy for me to put on muscle, but then I also put on a bunch of fat with it too. So I always kind of joke. It was like, this was a, a classic example of a bulk gone wrong, but it wasn't like I was bulking on six cups of brown rice per day. I was eating Jack in the box tacos. I was eating everything under the sun. I remember my wife's brother being like, uh, looking at this uh, baking sheet that I had full of tater tots, like just an entire giant baking sheet. And I remember him being like, that's healthy. And I just remember that was such a snide little comment. And I was like, convinced myself, I'm like, this is healthy. I'm bulking. I was totally like fucking Eric Cartman in beefcake like that. I was like, oh, weight gain 5,000. Like as long, so fortunately I wasn't overweight for a long period of time. It was like two and a half years where I was, but I tipped the scales close to 300 pounds at one point. And the fact that I gained the weight that fast at the time, I didn't think of it, but now I think about it now. I'm like, what the fuck was mentally going on with me? This was like some weird element of self-sabotage. It was like, I'm a, I'm not a stupid guy, smart enough to know and self-aware enough to know that like, if you eat 10,000 calories, it was like, I was stuffing my face trying to gain weight. And I remember my wife even making comments like being like, you know, I love you anyway. I don't know what you're doing, but it was, it's crazy. It's like, you see those, my 600 pound life, you see that stuff where these people are laying in bed and they, they know what they're doing and they're doing it to themselves. And I was walking down that path. And then I think about like, oh my gosh, my sort of disordered eating past with being somewhat anorexic. This was like the opposite of it. I'm like, holy crap. I've got like some serious eating disorder stuff that I got to work with. Fortunately, I was able to get a grasp on it. I always joke about the moment when I saw someone that was an acquaintance of mine. They were driving down the road and they saw me eating Jack in the Box tacos. And maybe you've heard the story because it's floating around the internet all the time. But I, I went through Jack in the Box, pulled into a stall afterwards and was eating my translucent Jack in the Box tacos because they're so full of grease you can see through them. And this person drives by and he's not a close friend. He's an acquaintance, but he just waves at me nonchalantly. And it was the fact that it was such a nonchalant wave that I'm like, this dude, like he wasn't shocked by the fact that I'm sitting here stuffing my face. This was status quo normal to him. This is how people see me. The fact that he didn't, wasn't like, oh my God. The fact that he looked at me and was like, oh, what's up, Tom? I was like, oh fuck, I'm caught. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. And that was it. That was the moment. People were like, what was your call to action? Did someone say you're going to die? No, but I did make myself type two diabetic. I did give myself hypertension. I clinically made myself type two diabetic. So in a two year period of time, and that let that be wow. a testament to how a fucked up diet can really mess you up, right? It can mess you up quick. And it took me like seven years to get that shit normal again. But anyway, that all of that aside, that's, uh, you know, so this happens by the time I'm like, you know, 22, 23, you know, given my background and kind of what I was doing, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of happening in the background there with my healthcare career, healthcare administration, going into ancillary lab services in the private equity world for a short period of time, I really developed a really strong knack for biochemistry because I was essentially in medical sales. So I knew I had to be able to sell to physicians and be able to explain uh, various lab services, salivary cortisol testing, explain these things. And I'm like, I, I knew I was a really good salesperson with that. 
because I was able to, I knew so much about the body just because I was so in tune with myself. And I got super into biochemistry, just super into it to the point where I'm like, I want to go back to school for biochemistry. I dropped out, of, uh, dropped out of college, you know, and like, I want to go to school for, for biochemistry. I want to go back. And then I realized like, you know what? Like I'm actually making good money doing what I'm doing without that. And I'm really good at what I do. And physicians respect me and the community respects me and the scientific community was respecting me then. So anyway, the point is, is like I had a good breadth of knowledge. So all it took was like that catalyst for me to be like, I got to get my life in order. And, uh, you know, then there's this kind of whole interstitial period between when I launched my brand and everything like that, which is kind of, there was some downtime. And, um, what did you do to take yourself from di- like, what, what's, what's the type of diabetes that you gave yourself and what does that mean? That well, hypertension, I mean, all that shit. And then how do you go from where you were to even anything approaching health? Yeah. So, well, type two diabetes, I mean, clinically, if you're over uh, 125 uh, nanograms per deciliter glucose, you're technically clinically diabetic and you're fasting glucose um, or pre-diabetic. And then once you start climbing over like 140, then you're kind of in that clinical range. So I remember my glucose being like 144 fasting repeatedly. Bad, really bad. Knowing what I know now, I know why that happened. Knowing what I know now, I know how it was corrected. All I knew was that I needed to reverse it and I needed to fix this issue because I looked at my wife and I'm like, this is stupid. Like all this happened in a pursuit of building muscle, fucking up my body in a pursuit of building muscle, but also then losing sight of that and fucking up my body in a pursuit of making money. So these two vanity things, muscle and money, mm-hmm. like could have completely fucked up my life. I did fuck up a lot of my life because it took me years to get my health back. And there's certain things I still struggle with to this day as a result of just like massive basic binging for a couple of years. What like? Well, I mean, for example, like it's still like my testosterone levels are still pretty tanked, right? I think that I did that damage at a very critical age. I think at a time when testosterone levels should have been peaking, I was ruining them, right? Uh, So, you know, things like that. I deal with that, uh, the mental repercussions of it. So there's a lot of attributes where, you know, maybe it's more difficult for my body to produce hormones naturally because at that point, it was, you know, obviously I stay in shape. Obviously I'm, I'm lean. It doesn't affect me too much like on the surface, but maybe there's stuff deeper down. Did I take years off my life? Possibly. Was it a massive hormetic stressor that's going to make me live to be 130? Maybe. I don't know. That would be great if the secret was jack-in-the-box tacos for you to- The whole time. Centenarian. Yeah, it was staring us in the face the whole time. So what you've mentioned there is these two things around money and vanity- but as you said earlier on, you have this sense of obligation to be in shape now because your business relies on the condition that you're in, at least in part, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so that dynamic is maybe much more integrated, maybe much more under your control, maybe much more holistic, transcended and included. But it's definitely still there. It's definitely still there. And if it wasn't for having my first my first kid, my son, I think I might have been chasing this for all the wrong reasons. You know, I, I thoroughly enjoy helping people, but I was starting to notice that I enjoyed the validation of helping people. I didn't just enjoy helping people. And it was, it wasn't like I'm doing this for me, but at the same time, I was like, I'm doing this for once again, a dopamine hit, like this dopamine hit that I get out of, this was, you know, five, seven years ago, creating content. I was like, before my son was born, I'm just like, I'm good at this. The brand is growing, but felt so fucking empty. Mm. Felt so good. I, or felt, felt, felt so wrong, right? Like nothing felt good. And when I 
had my son, you know, five and a half years ago, or at least when I found out we were pregnant. So six years ago, six and a half years ago, things changed, man. Like life just has to change. And all of a sudden, like when my son came into this world and actually, you know, right before my son, we found out we were pregnant a few days later, my dad passed away. So there was a lot of very interesting stuff that happened that sort of shifted my, like rocked my world, man. And what probably needs to be said to be able to explain the full story is, you know, you notice I haven't said much about my dad and I realized that like my mom in an effort to like keep us with her all the time, sort of kept this away from our dad. And I don't think she was meaning to do it. Maybe she was, I don't know. I never want to speak ill of my mom. I love my mom so much. And, but it's weird because I felt like I didn't really establish a relationship with my dad until I was an adult. And then pretty much as soon as I established a relationship with him, he got a cancer diagnosis and I didn't get it. So I never got the relationship with my dad. And like to this age day now with like my age, like I crave a dad so fucking much, right? Like I, I missed like, and we found out we were pregnant on Valentine's day of 2017. And my wife gives me a Valentine's day card and it's got the pregnancy test in it. And she had just found out that day too. So like, we're like, this is, I almost passed out. Like I, you know, think my wife videoed it, sneaky bastard. Like she videoed it, I turned fucking pale. And I kind of like put a fake smile on, you know, for a second. <laughs> and then, you know, 30 seconds, a minute goes by and I'm like, wow, okay, this is going to be cool. Like there's no turning back. So like, this is going to be awesome. And uh, then we get, my dad was in hospice, but then like the next day we get the call that, uh, hey, like he's going down. Like this is, you got to come up to the Bay Area and come see him. And like four days prior to this, we lose our dog that had been with my wife and I since we were together in high school, you know, right? So it was like, lost the dog, found out we we're pregnant. And then we got to, okay, let's make a beeline up to see my dad. So we go see my dad, hold my dad's hand and uh, tell him he's totally incoherent. You know, he's out. And uh, so dad, you know, uh, you're going to be a grandpa. And like, he hadn't, he hadn't made any signs of life whatsoever. Like he was just breathing, like, and cracked a smile. And hour and a half later, he died. You know, and it was like, he waited and it was like, so just talk about just powerful stuff all happening at once where it was like, I got this, like a little bit of closure, but also this sense of like, I don't want to go super deep, but like right before the night before my son was born, I had a dream where my son was born. I was walking down my childhood hallway. My brother, who's 15 years older, half brother, uh, was there and just giving me like a nod of approval. I walk past like the bathroom, my sister's standing there giving me a nod of approval. And then I walk and I turn the corner in my hallway and my dad, I just remember his big Italian hands of this dream that's like reached out. I didn't see his face. I could just see his hands and I like handed the baby over to him. And then I woke up from the dream and my wife was going into labor. This is the weirdest, crazy thing, man. And like with all of that, like, dude, something just clicked, man. It was like, I got to change. Like something needs to change. And I don't, I can't tell you what actually changed, man, but it, like how I looked, how I created content, how I looked at how I wanted to help people, how I looked at how I wanted to like make the world a better place for my son, how I wanted to be a father that was present for my son that my dad didn't fortunately have the ability to really do for me. Yeah. Long-winded explanation. Given the fact that you're now a father of two, you have the opportunity to reflect on your experience both with mom and dad has this given you a new insight that you didn't see before has it thrown into harsh light some things that you thought that were totally normal 
Has it uh, motivated you to be a particular way as a father? Yes, a million percent. Yes, it's, uh, I try to look at things. There, there's things that are maybe unconventional, but not necessarily bad that I look at with my childhood. I try to, I, I do try to look at the world through rose-colored glasses as much as I can. Like I try to find the positive in things, you know, so all these things have made me who I am today. But the fact, you know, I see a lot of times, especially in divorced families where parents pit children against one another. And it happened in my wife's family. And unfortunately, I think it happened in mine. And I don't think that it was necessarily intentional. I think sometimes it's human nature to kind of like take, you know, like, oh, I want to reach, I want to grab, I want to hold this. Uh, and those are the kinds of things where my wife and I talk about all the time. Like, if we ever go our separate ways, like if something ever happened, like, we can't be like that. Don't use the <laughs> you know, kids as leverage. Like, never, ever. Uh, that happened a lot. And I think that I look back at when I was dealing with most anxiety, when I was pulling the hair out, I was right at the peak of the divorce, you know, and I'm like, what was I feeling as a kid? So like, for me, it's like, man, just to be able to shower my children with love, but be able to just make them feel like they can, they can do anything in the world as long as they put in the work and that they're always going to have a safe place. Whereas I grew up thinking that like, no, like you are only really loved if you perform. And I'm like, up until having children, I kind of thought that was the way it was supposed to be. Supposed to give this tough love. Like you perform, you perform, you perform mm. and you equals love. Let's keep a spreadsheet. You know, where it's now, it's like, fuck, man, you can do whatever you want, kiddo. Like, if you are sincerely happy and you are accomplishing and you are doing good in the world, I got your back. And uh, that is definitely transcended into how I create content. Because now I'm like, I used to live in this echo chamber with what works for me. Intermittent fasting worked for me. I lost a lot of weight with it. It fucking worked for me, 100%. Keto worked for me. So that means it's going to work for you, man. And here's why. And let me give you all the justification as to why. And let me create all this content surrounding why, 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 justifying, justifying, justifying. Suddenly I'm like, holy crap. I'm using my gift for all the wrong shit. Like I'm using my gift to justify what worked for me. And it motivated and inspired a lot of people. But I'm like, man, I can reach millions more people if I stop leaning into my gift as being my transformation and being my gift as my ability to articulate complex subject matter that gets people passionate and excited mm. to be the best they can be sincerely. Less dogmatic, less rigid with the way sure. that you're talking about stuff. 100%. Yeah. I mean, dude, I, I talk about this so much. The fact that you cannot understand the price that certain people pay to be in a position that you think you want to be in. You know, so from the outside, the three and a half million person YouTube channel and respected by scientists all over the world and walking around at five to 6% body fat and jacked and wife and kids and money and so on and so forth. We go, okay, let's just take a small inventory of all of the things that have had to happen in order to contribute to this, right? You know, the entire childhood, the working from the age of 14, the pulling the hair out, the social awkwardness, like all of that, all of that. Um, that is the price that you need to pay to be Thomas DeLauer. And it is, I think it's very important for people to see the human behind the success. I think it's one of the most important things. It's one of the most useful things about having conversations like this because all of the people that I respect who have achieved success have done it in spite of a thing, not because of a thing. And, you know, for all that success looks fantastic from the outside, a lot of the time people are running away from something that they fear as well as running towards something that they want. Uh, and 
the vast majority of people. Michael Gervais, the guy that mm-hmm. does uh, is it Seeking Greatness, I think, or, or Chasing Elite Performance, the podcast. Um, I asked him. He's worked with like every high performer on the planet. He helped Felix Baumgartner jump from the edge of space for the Red Bull Stratos mission. And I said, on average, do you think that high performers are happier or more miserable than the normal person? He's like, by a million miles, more miserable. It's like people that perform, people that are successful, on average, are more miserable. More miserable. And you go, okay, well, what does it mean that the people that are the most successful are the ones with the least admirable internal states? Like, what does that mean? What do, how should we frame success? How should we consider what we think of as being admirable, desirable? Uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to work out. You, you want the outward success, but do you really want to go through the pain and the mental texture that comes along with it? 100%, man. It's, it's a, Lewis Howe has asked me, what's your level of self-love on a scale of one to 10? And I was like, dude, maybe like a six, five, six. Mm-hmm. I was like, some days I wake up and I'm an eight, but other days I wake up and I'm a four. It's like, so maybe it averages out to like a five or six. And he was like, really? And then I flipped it around and I asked him sort of the same thing. I was like, you come on, dad, you talk to a lot of successful people. And he's like, yeah, they all kind of fall around the same as you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a level of like, I don't, I don't loathe myself but I don't love myself. Uh, but as I try to get a grasp on this, you know, being self-aware of what drives me forward, what makes me, what makes me tick. I really, I try to be aware of that. And I try to be aware of like, okay, just because my self-love is a six, that's doesn't mean it's actualized into me performing at a six. So I still try to say like, I'm still going to perform like a 10, mm. still going to eat like a 10. I'm still going to like, live my life like a 10 and maybe it'll fake it till it makes it a little bit. But so far it's not. I think that that's the way to do it, man. I I believe that we lead with action. uh, And I think that small steps are much more difficult for your psyche to deny. Even if you are a glass half empty kind of person, if you continue to show up, if you continue to do the things that are good for you, if you continue to succeed in spite of your, uh, absolute certainty that you're not going to succeed. After a while, you just have this crushing weight of evidence that shows you that you are able to do this thing or you can achieve in the way that you are, that you're intending. So one of the things that you mentioned there was that intermittent fasting was like a a bit of a godsend for you. Uh, It has been highly contested on the internet. Mm -hmm. What is, in your opinion, as someone that has spent a lot of time researching, practicing, and coaching intermittent fasting, what is the optimal structure and the most important foundations to understand about intermittent fasting? The best structure is the structure that works best for you as the individual. It's not the sexiest answer, but it comes with practice and it comes with determining, am I someone that likes to eat in an eight-hour window, by someone that likes to eat in a four-hour window or a six-hour window. The best form of intermittent fasting is the one that you don't get addicted to, the one that you can still use as an effective tool without using as a crutch. The best form of intermittent fasting for the individual is going to be the one that you feel the best on, the one that you get the heightened mental alertness, that clarity that you seek out. The moment that you start to do it because of an arbitrary number is the moment that you've already lost the battle. The biggest benefit to me with intermittent fasting is not body composition changes. 
It's not cognitive awareness. It's not this. It's the element of mastery that comes with it. And that's where people miss the boat because you cannot contest that. You can sit here and you can fight every single nook and cranny of intermittent fasting based upon where you stand in your views of nutrition, time-restricted feeding. Say, oh, well, caloric restriction is just as good. Well, yeah, intermittent fasting is kind of caloric restriction. You know, this, that, whatever. You cannot argue with me that there is an element of mastery that comes into place with abstaining from something. We talked about this with caffeine. We talked about this with alcohol. Food is a drug that we are constantly exposed to, which means that it's incredibly difficult to abstain from it in a proper way. And we are bombarded with social cues to tell us that it's okay to eat whenever we want. Is that the truth? Like, should we eat whenever we want? Should we eat ad libitum? I don't know. I mean, it's certainly real world because that's the world we live in today, but is it accurate? Is it, is it fair to assume that that's how we should eat? Regardless of your beliefs there, being able to abstain from food and having the control to do so seemingly gives me control in much, much many other, or gives me control in a lot of other elements of my life. And maybe that reflects back to my childhood and wanting to have some control, mm -hmm. but there are a hell of a lot of people that respond in a very similar fashion to I do. That's very interesting. The fact that it's about the story that you tell yourself to do with the intermittent fast as much as it is to do with some magic that comes along for the ride. Yeah. I had uh, Peter Atira on the show yesterday, and he said the exact same thing. Every study that he has found so far hasn't suggested that there is any secret source hiding in time-restricted eating beyond caloric restriction, that there is no um, – it, it just doesn't seem – it seems to be a very easy-to-follow route for caloric restriction. Is that your reading of the literature as well? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think there is a little bit of nuance there. I think that people that are severely metabolic, I think that people that are severely metabolically deranged and have severe metabolic disorder, uh, probably get different benefit, slightly different benefit because there's something that needs to be unraveled there. And I think Peter's actually even talked about that. It's like people that, uh, when you're in a severe situation where you are very, very unhealthy, then abstaining from food in particular time fashions could have other advantages. Uh, that autophagy? Well, like autophagy that. is one of these things. Like It's a word that's thrown around, right? It's, it's, is it bullshit? Is autophagy bullshit? It's not bullshit, but it's definitely not this magic. Like it's happening all the time, right? It's ha if I go into a caloric deficit or if I take some time in between meals or you know what the biggest driver of autophagy is, is exercise, right? Nobody talks about that. That's not sexy. You can't say like, oh, like exercise is going to induce autophagy. It's going to induce it three times more than fasting will. Now, there are different types of autophagy. There's macro-autophagy, micro-autophagy. There's lipophagy, which is where you're actually uh, sort of recycling fat cells. All different varying forms that happen at varying levels based upon what someone is doing. Fasting, exercise, general caloric restriction. And autophagy is dictated a lot of times by many things, but at the very simple level, AMPK phosphorylation which is a dimmer switch, not a light switch. So yes, the more aggressive the caloric restriction, the more aggressive the exercise-induced deficit, the more aggressive the autophagic flux. Now, with that being said, it's like you can turn that to a certain degree and it's probably going to reach a maximum before you start like degrading tissue and having a negative outcome. So it's not a light switch where it's like as soon as you go into a deficit, you flip a switch and you're, you have maximum autophagy. The argument with that is like, okay, well, intermittent fasting, you're abstaining from food, you're ending up in that caloric restricted phase. 
significantly faster because you're just not eating. So one could argue that you flip that dimmer switch a little bit faster. And if you combine that with exercise, maybe you get more autophagy. That's certainly a valid argument, but it does not does not warrant us to say that like intermittent fasting is the best way to get autophagy, not by any means. Okay. What about building muscle while fasting? So I think it sounds almost insane to say like, while you're literally fasting, you're going to build muscle. Uh, it's funny enough. I think Peter Atia had actually mentioned some point in the past, like muscle protein breakdown and muscle protein synthesis are always a balance of each other. And when you are in a fasted state, you have a high degree of muscle protein breakdown. That does not mean that you're necessarily catabolizing muscle. What it implies is that you could be breaking down tissue from one area of your body. And then after the fast is complete, when muscle protein synthesis increases, you reestablish formation in another area of your body or in that same area, right? So as long as basic protein needs are met within your eating period, you absolutely can build muscle with intermittent fasting. But I think there's a line. I usually kind of draw an arbitrary line at like 24 hours. I feel like if you're doing consistent 24-hour fast, like every other day, Perhaps it's harder to build muscle, but if someone's doing like an 18, six, three or four days per week, of course you can build muscle. I talked about this recently. Look at your calories over the course of a seven day period, not daily. Like if you want to be in a surplus, be in a slight surplus at the end of the week. If you want to be in a deficit, be in a slight deficit at the end of the week. Maybe Monday you eat 4,000 calories. Maybe Tuesday you eat a thousand. Maybe Wednesday you eat 4,000. Maybe Thursday you eat 1,500. It's like that constant undulation might be good for the human metabolism because it doesn't reset every night at midnight to zero. What about looking at a, a fat loss plan overall? If you were to design the non-negotiables that should go into it, regardless of time restricted, regardless of how someone is coming into this, what are the non-negotiables for a fat loss plan? Yeah, for me, I still have to side with just about everybody and say thermodynamics are probably the most important thing. Are we going to discover that to possibly be different later in the life? We might, who knows? We always have to be open to that. But I think right now the evidence is just too strong to ignore that, that thermodynamics matter. Too many camps trying to like oppose that. So let's just all agree on that. That's when you say that, you mean Keiko, right? You mean calories in, calories out. Yeah, which is a very complicated matter. It's not as simple as people think, but people try to make it simple for the sake of content, but it is very complex because there's all kinds of influential factors that determine that, right? How much calories we're actually burning, how much we're actually consuming. Uh, Did you juice this fiber, et yeah, cetera, et cetera? Yeah, it, it, all kinds of stuff that comes into play. Um, the other piece that I think is a non-negotiable is having adequate breaks between meals. I feel, for me at least, that's a non-negotiable. And the reason that that comes under fire a lot is because that implies that you're suggesting that insulin has to always be low. Not at all. I'm suggesting that we have periods of time between meals that we do allow insulin to be low. Maybe that's an 18-hour fast. Maybe it's just having adequate three hours between meals. I think for maximum- what, what, what would be the problem with just grazing every hour and a half? Personally, well, even an hour and a half, as long as you were just like taking that adequate break, because you have this spike in insulin and that insulin level needs to come down for glucagon, the counter-regulatory hormones to release- which are ultimately going to allow fat loss to occur. Like lipolysis, as far as I know, cannot occur in the presence of insulin. Like if insulin is elevated at that particular moment, lipolysis cannot occur at that moment. You cannot be utilizing fat while insulin is elevated. That doesn't mean that you never spike insulin. That means you keep track of when things go up and down. Your fat burning mode isn't right when you eat, contrary to the whole thermic effect of food thing. Like that's such a negligible amount. The fat burning occurs after the insulin levels have come back down to baseline 
and lipolysis and beta oxidation can occur. So I think maybe it's not a non-negotiable as far as the general world is concerned because you could effectively eat like a pea every five minutes and be eating 800 calories and yeah, lose yeah, weight. Yeah, yeah. But I think for adequate muscle preservation and for maximum fat loss, I think just keeping a keen eye to that is very beneficial. Um, <clears throat> other non-negotiables, uh, I think G-flux is a very important thing that's not talked about enough. Uh, that's energy flux. I subscribe to this, man. Yeah. I realized this as soon as I started doing CrossFit. Yeah, right? It's, it's you know, you know what's crazy is uh, I've had, you know, Alan Aragon? Uh, he's, he's great. You should have him on. He's, he's, uh, just, he's basically the person that takes a lot of these major research papers and like writes the summaries for them. Like he's like that well-versed. So he basically writes the condensed summary. So he's so good at articulating. In fact, I literally like, I did a number of videos with him just cause he's so well-spoken on this stuff. And he and I were talking about it. It's like, have you ever been in the presence of like an athlete that is just a crazy intense athlete with a lot of energy? It's like, you're around them and you can like literally feel their energy. Compare that to someone that's on their deathbed. There's like a completely different, like it's, they're literally fluxing at a different capacity and people don't realize that there's like a mobilization cost or fee associated with more energy and using more energy. So if you eat 2000 calories per day and burn 2000 calories per day, and I eat 5,000 calories per day and burn 5,000 calories per day, you'd say, Hey, you guys are both at net zero, right? Wrong. I'm actually burning more because there is more energy cost and G flux, energy flux involved at a higher rate of metabolism. It's almost like the mobilization fee. It costs, it costs money. It costs currency to mobilize that much energy. It's like, if you call someone over to replace your windshield, they're going to charge you a mobilization fee because it costs them money to get there. So every time you have an energy exchange, it costs currency. The more you eat and the more you move, the more you burn overall. This was what I realized when starting CrossFit that I'd always, up until that point, because I was doing bro split bodybuilding, which means that really, unless you're doing incredibly intense sessions, how are you losing? You're not going to put yourself into a caloric deficit through training. You're going to do it through food, right? So it's always this sort of race chasing your tail of like fewer calories to beget fewer calories, to beget lower metabolism, to beget fewer calories. Then I start doing CrossFit and I'm like, okay, my I need to eat three and a half thousand calories just to not be hungry when doing this. And I got leaner and I thought, oh, that's strange. And then I started training more and getting heavier and getting fitter and leaner. I was like, I'm, I keep on eating more and more food and yet I'm getting leaner because I couldn't put enough food away in order to be able to compensate for the deficit that the training was putting me in. And I understand, I understand that you have much more control over the food that goes in your mouth than the calories that you expend through your output. I, I, ben Carpenter came on the show and gave me a really beautiful framework that helped me to understand why losing fat for most people through caloric restriction rather than the increase of exercise is at least something that they have a greater degree of control over. I think that that seems to make a good bit of sense to me. But for the people that do have it in the tank to be able to go and do high-intensity training with progressive overload, with some loading, multiple times, maybe per day or at least every day, G-flux theory for me, which is the 3,000 and 3,000 and 3,000 out versus 2,000 and 2,000 out, that seemed to make a massive difference as far as I could see. Dude, it's it's huge. I love Ben, by the way. Dude, that guy is great. Like, He's he, fantastic. He does a really good job of... Uh, just distilling things and just uh, humanizing it. Like he just like, so there's not, not a lot of people that I really 
like, I, and he's kind of come on the scene recently for me. Like I've just, and uh, yeah, just, I mean, just he's crushing it. kudos to him. He's doing good. What else? But, Anything else? So, well, kind of dovetailing off the G flux thing. I think the non-negotiable that also comes to play is adequate diet breaks. Like, so that comes with the G flux. Like it, if you just continually restrict calories, you're going to end up in that, that cesspool of just, and that happens so much with intermittent fasting. It's relevant, right? Because people say, oh, I'm going to do 16, eight fasting. So they restrict calories. And then next thing they know, like they think they're fasting, but all they're doing is restricting calories. Like, sure, they're eating in a certain time block, but that doesn't absolve them of thermodynamics, right? So at the same time, it's like restrict calories and then they have to restrict calories more. And then they're like, oh, well, I'm eating 1800 calories a day or 1500 calories a day because I'm intermittent fasting, but I'm fasting every day. Why isn't this working anymore? Well, because you're doing the same damn thing as just restricting calories, right? Now, <laughs> now reintroducing calories and being able to actually get the metabolism back up to a, an adequate state involves applying G-flux with proper diet breaks. So what I mean by that is you can't just say, I'm going to have a diet break and start eating a bunch of shit. If you do that, things are going to go cattywampus. You're going to have compensatory mechanisms that come into play that make you gain fat very fast. Probably because, because you've driven it through you've the driven floor. It down so, and all yep. of, yeah. So people make the mistake of going back to eating like they used to eat. No, you have to increase the calories to where you are at maintenance now, which is very difficult for people to understand because- Reverse diet back up gently. Yeah, well, people don't, and most people aren't going to figure that out. They're not going to say like, okay, I've lost 30 pounds of lean mass, 20 pounds of fat mass. That means I need to adjust my calories to baseline at this for maintenance. So the easiest way to do that is when you get to those stages, if it's possible, increase your intensity of training to allow for increase in calories. That way you're increasing that flux while taking a diet break in a very conservative fashion that limits the risk of fat regain, but still allows for metabolic rate to increase and your RMR to come back up. Right, because that's then going to allow you to uh, increase metabolic rate without gaining too much more weight, which then allows you to rebegin another diet from the top with this higher base metabolic rate, right? Okay. Nailed it. How do you square the circle of one of the biggest predictors of longevity being caloric restriction with G-flux theory? Yeah, so I, this has come to battle, right? Like I, I've seen this popped up in the comments for me multiple times. It's like, okay, where do you draw the line? And this is where I almost feel like, is this where fractal eating and kind of breaking up how we eat could be beneficial? Like, because where do you draw the line of caloric restriction? Like, is caloric restriction daily? Is it weekly? Is it monthly? Is it yearly? Like, when, who's counting? How do we know? Is it protein restriction? We don't really know. Is it mTOR phosphorylation? Like, where, where do you really draw this line? So that is a use case where I could say, okay, maybe fractal eating makes sense. Maybe you eat in a surplus or slight surplus with a lot of activity one day and then lower activity, lower intake another day so that your net over the course of the week maybe is a slight deficit, but you have adequate muscle stimulus to still preserve muscle. The problem so that you have if you, if you choose to do that is that it's not a very routinized life, nope, right? You know, not. So in a, a sandbox perhaps or a Petri dish, or a spreadsheet, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to humans want to do the same thing most days, I want to train five days a week and have weekends off. I want to do three days on one day off. I want to do whatever, right? Like the more, the more complex and fractal that you make the routine, the more poor the adherence and compliance is going to be. Could people possibly just periodize quarterly? I mean, is that, yes. is that too yes. much to ask? So that, would be, that would be easier. Say, hey, let's say, let's look at this globally over the course of a year. Yeah. Let's say this quarter, I want you to be in a slight surplus. This quarter, I want you to be in a slight deficit. 
and just keep on going back and forth quarterly. You know, no one knows the answers to this, obviously. Otherwise, we'd all be living to be a thousand years old. Uh, but then, you know, brings up the equation of, uh, of the protein thing too, right? Like methionine and all this stuff, like protein, is it aging us? Is what, what's your read at the moment? I asked Peter this yesterday so I can compare and contrast your answers. There's interesting arguments on both sides. Um, I do think that the methionine research makes sense. I do think that there's a, a large plant-based kind of skew to it that sort of distorts how we look at that data. I try to look at that data objectively without sort of the plant-based skew and say, how do we apply this methionine um, discussion and protein contributing to aging independent of any plant-based discussion? Can this apply for the Mediterranean diet where there's still moderate meat consumption? Uh, and I think the answer is yes. I do think that being able to have adequate mTOR phosphorylation is very important for adequate recovery. I think that we are- This learn- means eating meat. Eating right. meat. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sorry. I, so I think it's very important for recovery. I think it's very important for cellular signaling. I think insulin is one of the most important hormones for longevity too. And you know, as a peptide hormone, it, it comes under fire as this demonized thing, but I think insulin is also a catalyst for repair. So- it is a balance, but do you balance at 51% towards the mTOR phosphorylation side or 51% more towards the AMPK side where you're trying to be like, I'm going to restrict. Um, and with that, I lean slightly in the camp of being on the mTOR side, being protein being more important than restriction of protein. I think adequate amounts of protein with caloric restriction might be somewhat of the answer. This is an area that I find quite confusing because I've got... On one side, friends like Michaela Peterson, Mark Bell, uh, and also my own felt sense that when I do lean more heavily into meat, that I think I perform better, mm. I feel better, uh, my body is better. Um, the feedback that I got from Marik Health after I did my blood panel was the same. Let's We need to get some organ meats in there. Let's eat some more red meats. And then I see the other side of the world, especially the longevity biohacking side that sort of demonizes a lot of this. Uh, I don't know whether you've seen Brian Johnson. Have you mm-hmm. seen that guy? What do you mm-hmm. think of him? What do you think of his approach to to the world? So he sort of uh, got the approach of, I mean, moderately low protein, right? Yeah. So it's, you know, other than kind of the surface level stuff with the moderate low protein, I don't follow or subscribe to his way of thinking, so I can't comment aggressively. But I think that the more that we can thoughtfully acknowledge both sides, that's that's really important. Because Again, like we have to ask ourselves the question, like, are we looking at this through a wide angle lens or not? So like, what is happening globally? Like, what is your protein intake? Like, are you in a net positive protein balance? Is, I don't know this, I mean, you might be able to answer it. Is like, is Brian suggesting that you be in a, like a net negative protein balance? I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, he's coming on the show in a few weeks. So I'm going to ask him. Yeah. It's, I mean, I still think a net, like a net neutral protein balance would be optimal, but no one's going to be What does that mean? That means- your muscle protein synthesis is matching that exactly of your muscle protein breakdown. But who's going to be able to figure that out, right? right? So that would be the ideal situation. So until we have a way to measure that, we're always going to be in a slight surplus, which could be more, you know, methionine could be more issues uh, facing as far as longevity is concerned, or you're slightly on the opposite. So for me, like, how do we attenuate certain things and activate AMPK and activate these markers that are associated with longevity and caloric restriction? while also maintaining protein levels. Because I don't think protein is the problem. I think it's one of many different elements. And if you look at the blue zones, which people talk smack on the blue zones, um, and understandably so. What's the blue zones for the people that don't know? Blue zones are the 
areas of the world that have the people that live the longest. So you've got like Costa Rica, you've got Sardinia, you've got Greece, you've got, you know, so uh, Okinawa. And I did a video on this because I was so interested. I was like, we focus so much on the common denominators of these regions. We say, oh, well, all of them eat in a 10 to 15% caloric restriction. All of them eat low meat. Well, that's not necessarily true. All of them eat X fat. All of them do this. All of them do that. It's like, you guys are trying to find the common denominators. I want to find the outliers. What makes these unique? What makes the Okinawan diet so unique and different from the other blue zones? What makes the Costa Rican diet so different from Sardinia? Let's look at the outliers and take those outliers and craft the ultimate longevity diet. And that video crushed. Like, I think it just like got people thinking. There was no scientific rigor to it whatsoever. Other than What were the main takeaways? The main takeaways of it were like, okay, uh, high omega-3 content, uh, moderate polyunsaturated fat content, uh, fruit polyphenols, uh, fiber and diversity of diet. So you've got things like the Okinawans eat a crap load of like purple sweet potatoes, you know, things like that, right? And looking at that still being in somewhat of a deficit, but that deficit being more from like 1% to 8% versus a universal 15%. So a slight deficit. No scientific rigor to that whatsoever. It's just looking and pulling outliers and being like, what are the benefits of these outliers? And if we combine that, is that doing something? And I just encourage people to look at things like that because we're so quick to look for patterns that we forget about the power of an outlier pulling an average. Mm. So you mentioned the thermic effect of food earlier on, somebody that you're a little bit more familiar with than Brian Johnson would be V-Shred. <laughs> I am V-Shred. What is your reading of V-Shred and his work in the world of diet and fitness? I don't give two craps what V-Shred does, does. I just don't want people to confuse me with him anymore. Do you see why people confuse you with V-Shred? Well, we're both charlatan total. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's, it, you're significantly bigger and leaner than him. But well, that's a plus, thank you. If, if it was a dark, foggy night, I could see why people could confuse you for him. Well, isn't that the most most of social media? Like, I mean, it's a dark, foggy night for most people. That's If you put enough filters on, it is. Yeah, interesting. I mean, you'll speak to Z later on about this, but um, he did a, a series of adverts, because you can go on, I didn't know you could do this, but if you go find out someone's ad manager account or something, <laughs> or you can press on a, a particular page and see all of the adverts that they're running on Facebook. <laughs> Um, and they went on and had a look at all of the different adverts that V-Shred was doing. <coughs> and in one of them, they'd set him up in a studio kind of like this uh, that had the same red curtain, the same mic arm, the same mic, the same uh, like muffler top, the same desk, the same lighting as Rogan's studio. But he wasn't on Rogan. And it was him giving, doing basically an ad read fake on a podcast. I'm like, yo... We don't need chat GPT and AI to CGI like horse shit down our brains. Like people can do this in person at the moment. That, that I mean, brings V shred up to Zach later on because he's got very strong opinions on the guy. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I saw that months ago and I actually sent a screenshot it to my team. I was like, look at this guy. Like, like he's literally faking being on Rogan. And now, no, I noticed that it's a couple months later. It's like circulating around. Um, but I mean, like if my shirt's off and my hair is styled the way it normally is, like it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I did a video on it, like, uh, I don't know, three, four, five months ago. And dude, I mean, hundreds of comments being like, I thought you were him. Like, I'm sorry. Like I was really confused. I st wait, you're not, have him? you ever, con have you ever considered that you might be 
like cleaning up V Shred's uh, public image. Hundred percent. V Shred's really got his mind deep into the data here. He's reading the white papers. It really sounds like he's been educating himself. Well, it's it comes up as he holds on to the coattails of your like hard work. The like the best comment I saw was like. You know, oh, well, like I thought that you had all this really good content going organically so that you could afford the ability to be more aggressive in your ad campaigns, uh, you know, and be very superficial and simple in your ad campaigns, be more aggressive because people are, you know, they're not subscribed. They're watching your other content where it's very deep and very uh, scientifically backed. Yeah, it's it's becoming an actual battle that I have to deal with. Where Consider maybe a really aggressive, uh, like, design change like a gender reassignment perhaps or like a pink hair like grow it out i just think one of you needs to change and it might as well be you well dude i had an idea what if i what if i reached out to them and i said hey do what you want with this ad it's all good but i want to film an ad with v shred and yet actually like have both of us standing there be like i'm tom stelauer i'm v shred we have opposing views Stop confusing us. And then just let him go upon his merry way. That would be fun. That would, it would probably convert really well for them. Yeah. Because it's just different. It would, they spend millions of dollars on ad spend a month. So it would get it out there. And it would sanitize you from him. Very nice. Very nice. You need to do like a, you need to identify, I have a freckle on this side. You'll notice that his ears are a little bit, or like whatever. You need to identify those. So getting back to fat loss, one of the other, so the, the other side of it, we've spoken a lot about diet High-intensity interval training is something that people focus on an awful lot, specifically for fat loss. I remember being at university 13 years ago, and my first lad's holiday was coming up, try, getting into the gym to do fasted cardio first thing in the morning. If somebody is thinking, I want to use high-intensity interval training or zone two to improve my fat loss, what are the principles, the most important principles that they need to know? Okay. Yeah, with high-intensity interval training... I am a very firm believer that the magic is in the intensity of the interval itself. Far too many people go into HIIT training with like, I'm going to do one minute on, one minute off, one minute on, one minute off. That's not really HIIT training, if you ask me. That's more just high-intensity training. That's not high-intensity interval training. The magic of the high-intensity interval training comes from the fact that your interval should be as close to maximal as possible. And if you are able to hold maximum intensity for one minute, you're insane. That's that's not going to happen. You've got 15, maybe 20 seconds in you. So my idea of high intensity interval training is like 15 to 25 seconds, maximum intensity. And then however long it takes me to recover to be able to adequately go at that intensity again. Maybe it's two minutes. Maybe it's a minute. Maybe it's five minutes. Probably not five minutes. It's probably realistically somewhere in the realm of like two minutes. Mm. That is, to me, high-intensity interval training. Other forms of training where you're going one minute on, one minute off, that's more like various forms of Tabata, really, which has its place. Very good for calorie burning, but it's not the same as interval training. Is there something, is there some secret source in maximal output for fat loss? Uh, I mean, a lot of central nervous system stimulation. So that definitely has uh, an afterburn effect. Uh, There's definitely more glycogen depletion because you're very, very, very glycolytic when you're using that intensity. So if you're trying to deplete and you're trying to get in a carb-deprived state, uh, there's certainly evidence there for sure. Uh, Arguably, you won't even burn as many calories. So is it the most effective? Not necessarily, but it's certainly good for the metabolism. 
what would you prescribe if somebody was going to introduce training overall? They want to add maybe two or three sessions in per week. They say, I really want to add on top of an existing exercise protocol. Where would you go to? We might not go to the high intensity interval training. Would you suggest something more like a Tabata? I love, I love Tabata training. I love, I love EMOM style training. You know, for me, it's like every minute on the minute, whether it's cardio based, whether it's resistance training, dude, it keeps me honest. A clock always keeps me honest and it keeps me moving, keeps my heart rate elevated. But with an EMOM, I can fluctuate it every minute on the minute. If I wanted to go relatively, if I want to do sets of five on bench press, I could do that in EMOM fashion and taper and drop set accordingly. Like you could do so much with an EMOM. I know Marcus Philly is a big fan of that too. And he and I both are, are just big on EMOMs. It's just such a way to combine cardio and resistance training, but also such a unique way to just do cardio. Like you could do, I'm going to do 20 minutes of every minute on the minute, and I'm going to have five different cardio things that I'm going to do. Yep. I'm going to do 10 burpees for one minute, you know, or for however many I can do, 10 burpees in that. And then the rest of the time I have that break. Yep. The next time I'm going to do 20 calories on the echo bike or whatever. Yep. So it keeps it fresh. It keeps it exciting. keeps the mind going. So you're not bored. Uh, it's not repetitive on the joints. It's awesome. It's external accountability as well. Totally. It, for, for the people that aren't uh, like CrossFit pilled yet, introducing EMOMs into your training, especially if it's starting to run out of motivation, it's just like having a coach in the room with you, but the coach is just your watch. Uh, because even trying to do timed rest periods when doing bodybuilding, you pick up your phone. You like you, yeah. If you've got 25 seconds or 30 seconds of rest, you don't have enough time to go over and dick about on your phone, you go, look, it's a 20 minute or a 30 minute EMOM for 30 minutes. I'm doing this thing as opposed to saying, I'm going to do like four by 12 on this exercise and four by 12 on that exercise and four by 12 on the third exercise. And there will be a one minute break in between. You go, ah, it's not the same. It's not the same because you're not accountable to the clock. I'll give you two of my favorite workouts that I do. The first one is a uh, descending pyramid of reps for any gymnastics movement. So uh, handstand, press up, this is great for push-ups, this is great for uh, pull-ups particularly. So those are the three movements I like to do this with most. So you warm up on the movement, however long you need to do that, and then you do a single set of max reps on that movement, strict. So it'd be strict pull-ups, strict handstand push-ups, strict push-ups. Two-minute rest, then you take 50% of what that number was, you do that, one-minute rest, 50%, one-minute rest, and then you do 25% with 30 seconds rest four times. So you do it 100% with two minutes, 50% with one minute mm. twice, and then 25% with 30 seconds four times. And the reason that I love that workout is that it's over and done with in usually about eight minutes. You have worked maximally each time, pretty much. You are basically creating an RPE for the day that everything else then gets percentaged off. So if you go in and you're feeling shit hot, you've slept great, you've fed great, you're hydrated, your energy's good, you go in and you go, oh, holy shit, my first set on strict pull-ups was 16 reps there. I'm now looking at eights and fours for the rest of the day. Like, this is going to hurt. But, well, yeah, but your 100% was that big for a reason because you came in and you felt great. Or one day you go in and it's 11, you go, okay, I'm looking at like sixes and threes. Fine, okay, well, we'll, we'll, work, we'll work with that. Um, I really love it for that reason. Uh, and it's just, it's over and done with so quickly. And you can always continue. Okay, what did I get last time on the first one? Right, I'll keep on pushing that. So that's my favorite for that. And then when it comes to cardio, this is a, an exercise I did on a Concept2 bike erg ages ago, but it would work just as well on a rower. It would work just as well on a ski. You do uh, pretty high intensity as much as you can. Uh, 
two minutes off, uh, two minutes on, one minute off, six rounds. One minute on, 30 seconds off, eight rounds. 30 seconds on, 15 seconds off, 10 rounds. That's it. That's done in about 40 minutes or so. Uh, and that's a really nice recovery workout. And again, it's the same, starting off big, getting down to small. Those are my two favorites. Yeah, man, I love any kind of like ascending or descending ladder. Like they're just, they do something with my brain. They just work. Like it's just like it clicks. Well, you're always motivated, right? Because there's always something coming next. You're always excited about, oh, you're like, yeah, so I've got uh, one more of the twos left. And then that's like, I'm nearly halfway done. And then you end up doing this complex arithmetic in your mind to be able to work out, right? Well, I'm actually, in terms of working time, I'm nearly halfway done when I get to, you know, the second set of the whatever, whatever. Um, when it comes to dieting and uh, a lot of people, as me included with my Coke Zero, have a sweet tooth mm-hmm. and don't want to absolutely wreck our diet when it comes to satisfying that. What are your favorite personal hacks or best pieces of advice for how people can satiate their sweet tooth without pumping a shit ton of calories and, and bad stuff into them. I'm going to, I'm going to give you one that's really interesting. And if you clip this, make sure you add this note that this is mechanistic data. Okay. But it's interesting. And anecdotally, it seems to work. We have what are called NST neurons in our hindbrain. And a lot of times when we're craving something sweet, we're starting to see some research that we could actually be craving something salty. And it's kind of a gustatory response with the vagus nerve and what happens with the hindbrain. And what I have found, and again, it could just purely be anecdotal or placebo, having some salt actually kills that craving. And it does for me. Like every time I'm really craving something sweet, if I have something salty or just some electrolytes or something like that, it feels like that just scratches that itch so quick. It's somewhat temporary. Like it goes away fast, but there's enough small scale data for me to say, hey, this might actually work, but not enough, you know, observational data to say 100% works. Okay, so first thing is potentially look at throwing some element perhaps in water, knocking that back because you'll get a little bit of sweetness in that too. See if that blunts it. If the gravity force field pull of our desire for sweet stuff, what are some suggestions on foods that people could go to that you're okay with? Dude, I'm still a fan of like going for like 90% dark chocolate that still has a little bit of sugar in it. Like, don't be afraid. It's not going to kill you. But- the endorphins that you get out of the chocolate, like uh, endorphins is kind of a colloquial way of putting it, but there are basically flavanols in it that do have an impact on neurotransmitter function. And that's been demonstrated in quite a few studies that people feel really good after they have chocolate. So that way you're getting that dopamine itch scratched, but it's not from the sugar. It's more so from the fact that the chocolate and the theobromine is kind of having that impact. So that's a, that's a nice hack. The only downside is, you know, if you do too much of it, it's still pretty caloric. Right. Okay. Another concern that I'm starting to see people talk about more on in my corner of the internet is bloating after people have food. Mm-hmm. Someone hasn't done a, a FODMAP diet. They haven't you know, gone and done restrictions on, on the foods that they're doing. What are the most likely culprits, do you think, that people should be looking at if they do suffer with bloating? I think, uh, I mean, gut dysbiosis is a huge one. I okay. think that's just a lack of diversity of food within your diet, a lack of diversity of fibers. So you're looking at very simple gut imbalance. Okay. If you imagine a forest with wolves and squirrels and you have one wolf and you have 30 squirrels and you throw a bunch of food into a bunch of, you know, corn or something out there and the squirrels all eat that corn. 
the wolf might eat that corn, but the squirrels are going to eat that corn and their population is going to proliferate, right? That's going to grow. Suddenly you've got this crazy imbalance and this dysbiosis. But if you were to have wolves and you were to have squirrels and you were to have some possums and you were to have a, like a nice delicate ecosystem with lots of different animals and you threw that food in there, they'd all compete for that food and they'd all grow at, you know, somewhat proportional rates. And that's what we're really lacking a lot of times in the diet. And I know it has a little bit of a skew that people don't necessarily agree with sometimes, but it's not suggesting that everyone goes out and eats a bunch of fiber. One of the things that we do see across the board is that it's pretty well demonstrated that healthy guts are associated with a diverse diet and having diversity of different fibers, diversity of different foods in general, whether it's proteins, whether it's fibers, even fats, and this all has an impact. So I think in this day and age, we get really used to eating the same kind of things over and over. If you talk to people, like they don't, they're like, yeah, maybe I go to this restaurant one night and this restaurant another night, but they're not diversifying their gut microbiome the way that I think they should. Like I really do try my best to like rotate different vegetables that I eat, rotate different sources of fiber. I'll have chia some days and then I'll have uh, sweet potatoes another day. I really do try to rotate that up and that helped my bloating issues. Uh, my wife dealt with SIBO with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth for a number of years. Uh, for her, kind of going back down to baseline with a ketogenic diet helped her a lot, uh, but probably just because it's eliminating so much of those fibers. It's eliminating so much that it just brought her back down to baseline that when she reintroduced, everything sort of recalibrated. And I know a lot of people preach that. It's just not necessarily validated with research. I have a friend uh, called the Meat Mafia podcast. Have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that both of those guys, same thing. You know, like really, really bad uh, stomach issues. You are going to be on medication for the rest of your life. And they just went on a really aggressive elimination, got themselves to the stage where it seemed like their stomach had been given enough time to get rid of inflammation, calm down, rebalance itself. And then they slowly reintroduced foods. And it, it seemed like what the stomach needed, it wasn't chronic. It was acute and consistent. And once you gave that acute problem a little bit of time to calm down, there wasn't necessarily an underlying chronic problem under that. And it just allowed them to, they can relatively eat whatever they want. Um, it's fascinating, man. I, I think that, you know, the work that you do, Ben, Peter, Andrew, everybody uh, is really helping to educate people. It's a very, I've been someone that's been training for 15 years and I find it still now, I'm like, Fuck, is sugar in or out this month? Like, am I allowed it? Should I... Do I have to, should I have berries after I have meat? Is meat and fruit cool now? Or should I, do I need to, you know, it's it, it, the, the trends that come and go, the um, murkiness of not only what is being communicated, but even the studies that this is coming out of uh, and all of the perverse incentives. I think the work that you do is very impressive. For the people that are listening that want to check out more that you do, where should they go? Yeah, uh, vshred.com. No, <laughs> no, it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, YouTube is just Thomas DeLauer. Just type in my name. Instagram, Thomas DeLauer, uh, thomasdelauer.com, but I don't do much there, unfortunately. Um, yeah, and that's that's it. I mean, I'm just going to try to keep on fighting the good fight and just letting people do what they want with the information, just arm themselves with the tools and have at it from there. Thomas, I appreciate you. I appreciate you being very open and vulnerable today. I think there's lots that people can take away from it. Well, brother, thank you. Thank you.